Okay, so welcome to Grace Christian Fellowship. Uh, our adult Bible study class is uh, continuing on with our series in church history. Uh, we are going to do part two of the Martin Luther presentation. There's so much material for Martin Luther that we had to do this uh, in two parts. And so uh, hopefully uh, those of you who are viewing this over the internet will be able to see the picture on the screen that is projected. Good. I'm getting the thumbs up on that. Um, this is a painting that was done by a 19th century artist named Joseph Noel Patton. And this is a, a portrait of Luther. Of course, Luther didn't sit for this portrait like the earlier portraits we've seen from Lucas Cranach, uh, a famous German Reformation era, era artist. But this was Patton's uh, inspiration for Luther discovering the concept of uh, justification by faith alone in the scriptures. I'm not sure why it's not, the slide is not. <laughs> Okay. All right, so when we concluded our study of Luther last time, we saw that he was, had been summoned to a meeting with Cardinal uh, Cajetan or Cajetan at Augsburg, where he was to repent of his heretical beliefs and teachings against the Pope and the authority of the church hierarchy and specifically that the Pope had no authority to institute a dogma teaching justification through any means other than Christ. Luther, as we remember from last time again, he refused to recant or renounce his beliefs. Cajetan was supposed to arrest Luther if he did not recant, but he did not arrest Luther. So Luther was able to slip away from Augsburg at night, and he had the help of a Carmelite monk. However, in January of 1519, at Altenburg in Saxony, the papal nuncio or representative Karl von Miltitz adopted a more conciliatory approach. Luther made certain concessions to the Saxon, who was a relative of Frederick the Elector, and Luther promised to remain silent if his opponents did. Although, honestly, I don't see how Luther could have remained silent because, as we remember from last time, all of his works were being widely circulated, taking advantage of, the, of Gutenberg's printing press, widely circulated throughout Europe. So the theologian, Johann Eck, however, was determined to expose Luther's doctrine in a public forum. Johann Eck was uh, a German scholastic theologian, 
a Roman Catholic priest and an early counter-reformer who was among Martin Luther's most important theological opponents. So remember that name, Johann Eck. In June and July of 1519, Eck staged a disputation or debate with Luther's colleague, Andreas Karlstadt at Leipzig. And he also invited Luther to speak as well. Now, the reason he didn't um, stage this debate with Luther directly was, you know, Luther had to kind of keep things on the down low. And uh, Luther's friend, Andreas Karlstadt, could basically speak for Luther. Um, However, Luther did show up. And his boldest assertion in the debate was that Matthew 16, 18 does not confer on popes the exclusive right to interpret scripture and that therefore neither popes nor church councils were infallible. So once again, Luther is attacking the church hierarchy. Now, to help us better understand the controversy between Luther and his followers, on the one hand, and the Pope, the Catholic Church, Catholic theologians, and Catholic theology, on the other hand, we need to understand the concept of the magisterium. And the word magisterium, that comes from a Latin root word, So the magisterium of the Catholic Church is the church's authority or office to give authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition. And this concept of the magisterium continues in the Roman Catholic Church to this day. So according to the 1992 Catechism of the Catholic Church, The task of interpretation is vested uniquely in the Pope and the bishops. According to the Catholic Catechism, scripture and church tradition make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, which is entrusted to the church. And the magisterium is not independent of this since All that it proposes for belief as being divinely inspired is derived from this single deposit of faith. The content of Christ's divine revelation as faithfully passed on by the apostles is called the deposit of faith and consists of both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Okay, now throughout the Middle Ages, support for the primacy of the Pope, spiritually and temporally, or in in this natural order, and the Pope's ability to speak authoritatively on matters of doctrine grew significantly. And, you know, this is kind of an understandable thing, uh, and it's true pretty much of all human beings. Once human beings create an institution, They tend to want to see that institution grow and develop, and the Roman Catholic Church uh, was no different. Pope Boniface VIII, uh, 1294 to 1303, so uh, sort of in the middle of the Middle Ages, 
said in the papal bull, Unum Sanctum, he asserted that the spiritual world headed on earth by the Pope has authority over the temporal world and that all must submit themselves to the authority of the Pope to be saved. So if you want to be part of the church, if you want to be saved, you must submit yourself to the authority of the Pope and the church. Now the work of church councils were also included as part of the magisterium. So what we begin to see is that Luther's challenges to the existing order in the church world also were challenges to the social and political order in emerging European nations during the 1500s. Remember, there was no idea of the separation of church and state in Luther's time. Instead, everyone, everyone accepted the idea of Christendom, which means that virtually everyone in a geographic area is Christian. There might be small groups of non-Christians, predominantly Jews and Muslims, but the overall society is Christian and is in subjection to the church. Political rulers were supposed to be in subjection to the authority of the Pope and the Catholic Church. And again, already we've seen in each of our church history presentations how this was often not the case and that many temporal rulers, kings, emperors, uh, dukes, etc., were uh, chafing under the authority of the Pope and the Church. Christendom came into being when the Roman Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan way back in 313 AD, proclaiming toleration for the Christian religion throughout the Roman Empire. And because of what Constantine did, in, in essence, the Roman Empire became a Christian Roman Empire. Constantine called the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, whose Nicene Creed included belief in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Emperor Theodosius I made Nicene Christianity the state church of the Roman Empire with the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD. So from early days, uh, the church, and if you think about it, from what we know from uh, New Testament times, you know, as we see in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Epistles, Christianity went from being a small, many people thought of it as a Jewish sect originally, it went from being a persecuted minority religion to becoming the religion of the empire. And so Christendom was born. So here is a quote from uh, Martin Marty's biography of Martin Luther. As pressure on Luther increased, those monks who chose to associate with him took risks. Rome knew that when he attacked canon or church law, the legal foundations of the church that were a foundation of so much of European life Luther was disobeying the church as well as its secular counterpart, the civil authority that enforced ecclesiastical edicts. 
Officials could seize him in the name of the church and empire and put him to death. Friends and enemies alike were puzzled to see how Luther could be as productive as he was in the face of such threats and hazards. And indeed, it is uh, amazing that Luther, unlike so many of his contemporaries, was not seized and burned at the stake or uh, subjected to some other horrific death. So on, on uh, June 15, 1520, the Pope warned Luther with the papal bull or edict, exerge domine, that he risked excommunication unless he recanted 41 sentences drawn from his writings, including the 95 theses, within 60 days. And that autumn, Johann Eck, Luther's arch enemy, proclaimed the papal bull in Meisen and other German towns. Now, Karl von Miltitz, the papal nuncio, attempted to broker a solution come up with some type of compromise, but Luther, who had sent the Pope a copy of On the Freedom of a Christian in October, publicly set fire to the bull and other decretals or communications from the Pope at Wittenberg on December 10th, 1520. So Luther, Luther was one bold guy, that's for sure. <laughs> Luther defended the burning of the papal bull in Why the Pope and His Recent Book Are Burned and Assertions Concerning All Articles. Pope Leo, so Pope Leo X on January 3rd, 1521, in the bull Decet Romanum Pontificum, and uh, yeah, he excommunicated Luther. So that was it. <laughs> now, again, think about it. In, in the world of Christendom in Europe, if the Pope said, this person is excommunicated, nobody could associate with him. And, you know, they'd already issued orders to seize Luther, but nobody had actually executed those orders. You know, in this world of Christendom, the idea was if the Pope told the secular authorities to apprehend someone and put them in jail or subject them to torture or put them to death, the secular authorities had to obey the Pope. Uh, again, of course, fortunately, by the grace of God, many times the secular authorities did not obey orders from the Pope. <laughs> now, ironically, Luther maintained that he and those who sided with him should remain, remain members of the Christian community. This is an absolutely revolutionary idea in a world where there is only one church to maintain that people like Luther, you know, who adhered to these ideas, could also remain members of the Christian community. This is, this is very difficult for people in that time to accept. However, the fact of Luther's excommunication forced him to rethink what the Christian community is and how believers are related to it. Now, the enforcement of the ban on the 95 Theses fell to the secular authorities, and finally, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V acted. 
So on April 18th, 1521, Luther was ordered uh, to appear before the Diet of Worms, not worms. <laughs> <laughs> and there, supposedly there are many jokes that schoolboys tell about the <laughs> Luther lived on a diet of worms. <laughs> but it's actually, Worms it, is a city in Germany, uh, and the diet was a, an assembly of the estates or different representatives from different parts of society. Uh, these people were to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor, and they were having this big, essentially, conference. Um, and uh, Worms is a town on the Rhine, and you can visit it today and so forth. So the Diet was in session from January 28th to May 25th, 1521, with the Emperor Charles V presiding. Prince Frederick III, the Elector of Saxony, who was Luther's protector, obtained a safe conduct for Luther to and from the meeting. However, Johann Eck, again, Luther's nemesis, led the proceedings. And I don't know how well you can see that painting, but this is essentially a dramatic interpretation, again, by a 19th century artist of uh, Luther appearing before the emperor and the church authorities and Johann Eck defending his beliefs. So they laid out Luther's writings um, on a table, his books and manuscripts, and Eck asked Luther if the books were his and whether he stood by their contents. Luther confirmed that he was their author, but requested time to think about the answer to the second question, <laughs> which I find amazing. <laughs> so, you know, I think essentially he was buying, you know, trying to buy some time. And indeed he did. He prayed, he consulted friends, and gave his response the next day. And this is a quote from Martin Breck's biography of Martin Luther. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. So over the next five days, private conferences were held to determine Luther's fate. The Emperor Charles V presented the final draft of the Edict of Worms on May 25, 1521, declaring Luther an outlaw banning his literature and requiring his arrest. We want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic. It also made it a crime for anyone in Germany to give Luther food or shelter. It permitted anyone to kill Luther without legal consequence. Now, with the continuing protection of Frederick the Elector, Luther departed Worms for Wittenberg, but he never made it to Wittenberg. He was supposedly abducted by highwaymen who instead took him to the Wartburg Castle at Eisenach. 
And uh, again, I don't know how clear that picture is, but uh, the castle is there. And, um, and by the way, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Germany, um, certainly that would be an awesome trip. There are tour groups, uh, tours companies that all they do is Luther tours where you go about, you go through Germany, the different cities in which Luther lived and worked and uh, see these historic sites. So Luther found refuge in the Wartburg. Frederick saw to it that Luther would be hidden in the Wartburg castle to continue his work protected from Rome. During this time, Luther worked diligently on translating the New Testament from Greek into German. He also wrote many works on doctrine and continued his written attacks on corrupt practices in the Catholic Church. In On the Abrogation of the Private Mass, he condemned as idolatry the idea that the Mass is a sacrifice, asserting instead that it is a gift to be received with thanksgiving by the whole congregation. Luther's essay on confession, whether the Pope has the power to require it, rejected compulsory confession and encouraged private confession and absolution since every Christian is a confessor. In November 1521, Luther wrote the judgment of Martin Luther on monastic vows. He assured monks and nuns that they could break their vows without sin because vows were an illegitimate and vain attempt to win salvation. While Luther was hiding, studying, and writing in the Wartburg, his supporters were continuing to overturn Christendom as it had been known. And indeed, revolutionary activities uh, took place during this time. Andreas Karlstad, one of Luther's university colleagues supported by the ex-Austinian monk Gabriel Zwilling, embarked on a radical program of reform in Wittenberg in June 1521, exceeding anything imagined by Luther. On Christmas Day, 1521, Karlstad performed the first reformed communion service. He did not elevate the elements of communion. He wore secular clothing during the service and purged all references to sacrifice from the traditional mass. He shouted rather than whispered the words of institution, this is my body, etc. in German instead of Latin, rejected confession as a prerequisite for communion and let the communicants take both bread and wine on their own during the communion. So, uh, and, and this is something I haven't really brought out up to this point, um, but it was commonly um, practiced in the, in the Catholic Church at this time that only the bread would be distributed to the laity, the cup was not given. And there were a lot of reasons and rationales for why that was the case, but a lot of people had been saying, among other things, the laity should be able to receive both the bread and the cup. And this is something that the reformers, many of them, felt strongly about also. In early January 1522, the Wittenberg City Council authorized the removal of imagery from churches. So again, if you 
Now, for those of you who have never set foot in a Catholic church, this may not make a lot of sense, but um, if you've only been in Protestant churches, you will not have seen this. But it was commonplace, and still is to this day, for Roman Catholic churches, and this is also true of Eastern Orthodox churches, images, uh, statues, paintings, pictures, and, and the like, um, are very common throughout these types of churches. But then there, there arose a controversy about imagery in the church, about art and paintings, sculptures, statues, and so forth. Karlstad wrote his thesis on the removal of images and that there should be no beggars among Christians in 1522, shortly after this authorization from the city council. Karlstad began to participate actively in what is known as iconoclasm, which literally means against icons or against images. Karlstad himself, um, having been uh, part of the priesthood, uh, decided to marry. On January 19, 1522, Andreas Karlstad married Anna von Molkow, the 15-year-old daughter of a poor nobleman. Other supporters of the reform advocated for iconoclasm along with Karlstad. And again, iconoclasm is the belief in the importance of the destruction of religious icons, paintings, statues, and other religious art. This was in response to the understanding of the prohibition of idolatry and the manufacture and worship of graven or sculpted images of God from the second commandment. And, you know, certainly we know that this is a controversy that has continued among Christians up to the present day. Some Christians feel very strongly that churches should have, should not have art in the sense that many other churches do. Um, again, many Protestant churches have some amounts of that art. Uh, there are many Protestant churches with stained glass windows that portray uh, saints and other important figures from church history, but the understanding within Protestant churches is we do not bow in front of or we do not worship these images. Now, the reforms uh, that Karlstadt and, and some of the other Luther followers instituted provoked disturbances. There was a revolt among the Augustinian friars against their prior uh, the prior being the, the head of the Augustinian uh, abbey, the smashing of statues and images in churches, and denunciations of the magistracy. In other words, those authorities, both religious and secular, that were part and parcel of Christendom were under attack. Okay, now this picture, again, it may be difficult to see, um, I think you can, you can find this picture, um, if you want to see it better, you can look it up on the internet. You can go to the Martin Luther article in Wikipedia. Um, and this is essentially the parts of the wall are missing, but this is the room in which Luther worked while he was, uh, in hiding in the Wartburg 
Castle, where he translated the New Testament into German. And again, it's probably hard to see, but the act- his actual desk where he worked is there, and his German Bible is sitting on that desk in, in a, a protective case, um, the printed Bible printed on a Gutenberg press. So you can go to Germany and you can see this for yourself. So um, Luther slipped out of the Wartburg Castle and secretly visited Wittenberg in early December 1521. And he was certainly dismayed by what he saw and observed. He wrote a sincere admonition by Martin Luther to all Christians to guard against insurrection and rebellion. And again, if you think about it, I don't think Martin Luther ever realized until it was far down the road that what he was doing was he was revolutionizing the society of his day. His, his inner struggles to find peace with God and to understand how he could be saved worked its way out into the, the whole society that he lived in. So Wittenberg became even more volatile after Christmas um, in that year, 1521, when a band of visionary zealots, the so-called Zwickau prophets, arrived preaching revolutionary doctrines, such as the equality of man, adult baptism, and Christ's imminent return. So, you know, from the point of view of those people who were uh, not revolutionary, this was... You know, this was almost like the apocalypse. The end of, the end of time has come, and our our complete society has fallen apart. And you know, things are bad. When the town council asked Luther to return, he decided it was his duty to act. So he secretly returned to Wittenberg again on March 6, 1522. He wrote to the Elector of Saxony. During my absence, Satan has entered my sheepfold and committed ravages which I cannot repair by writing, but only by my personal presence and living word. For eight days in Lent, beginning on the first Sunday in Lent, March 9th, 1522, Luther preached eight sermons, which became known as the Invocavit Servants. In these sermons, he hammered home the primacy of core Christian values, such as love, patience, charity, and freedom, and reminded the citizens to trust God's word rather than violence to bring about necessary change. Luther said, do you know what the devil thinks when he sees men use violence to propagate the gospel? He sits with folded arms behind the fire of hell and says with malignant looks and frightful grin, Ah, how wise these madmen are to play my game. Let them go on. I shall reap the benefit. I delight in it. But Luther reminded his hearers, But when he, the devil, sees the word running and contending alone on the battlefield, then he shudders and shakes for fear. The effect of Luther's intervention was immediate. After the sixth sermon, the Wittenberg jurist Jerome Scherf wrote to the elector, 
Oh, what joy has Dr. Martin's return spread among us. His words through divine mercy are bringing back every day misguided people into the way of the truth. Luther began working for a more conservative emphasis in the reform of the church. But despite his victory in Wittenberg, Luther was unable to stifle the radicalism that was breaking out in many lands. Preachers such as Thomas Munzer and Zwickau prophet Nicholas Stork found support amongst the poorer townspeople and peasants between 1521 and 1525. There had been revolts by the peasantry on a smaller scale since the 1400s. Again, oppressive taxation from both church and, and secular authorities, um, the difficulties of the peasants. Um, you know, this was a festering problem throughout Europe in these uh, ages. Luther's pamphlets against the church and the hierarchy, often worded with liberal phraseology, now led many peasants to believe he would support an attack on the upper classes in general. For example, Luther said, therefore I declare that neither pope nor bishop nor any other person has the right to impose a syllable of law upon a Christian man without his own consent. Again, truly revolutionary for his times. Revolts broke out in Franconia, Fabia, and Thuringia in 1524. These are different provinces within Germany. Even drawing support from disaffected nobles, many of whom were in debt. Gaining momentum under the leadership of radicals such as Thomas Munzer in Thuringia and Hitler and Lotzer in the Southwest, the revolts turned into war. During a tour of Thuringia, Luther became enraged at the widespread burning of convents, monasteries, bishops, palaces, and libraries. In Against the Murderous, Thieving Hordes of Peasants, written on his return to Wittenberg, Luther gave his interpretation of the gospel teaching on wealth, condemned the violence as the devil's work, and called for the nobles to put down the rebels like mad dogs. Without Luther's backing for the uprising, many rebels laid down their weapons, but others felt betrayed. Their defeat by the Swabian League at the Battle of Frankenhausen on May 15, 1525, followed by Thomas Munzer's execution, brought the revolutionary stage of the Reformation to a close. Now, Martin Luther married Katharina von Bora in 1525, one of 12 nuns that he had helped escape from the Nimshin Cistercian convent in April 1523, when he arranged for them to be smuggled out in herring barrels. <laughs> Um, the, the movie Martin Luther, which, by the way, since I gave my last talk, is missing from my house. Hmm. Wonder where it went. <laughs> uh, the, the Martin Luther movie has, has a good uh, section uh, for how he met Katharina von Bora and how he came to marry her. 
Suddenly, and while I was occupied with far different thoughts, he wrote to Wenceslas Link, the Lord has plunged me into marriage. <laughs> Katharina was 26 years old and Luther was 41 years old. So, yeah. <laughs> Some priests and former members of religious orders had already married including uh, Luther's friend Andreas Karlstadt and Justice Jonas. But Luther's wedding set the seal of approval on clerical marriage. He had long condemned vows of celibacy on biblical grounds, but his decision to marry surprised many, not least Philip Melanchthon, who called it reckless. <laughs> Luther had written to George Spalatin on November 30th, 1524, I shall never take a wife as I feel at present. Not that I am insensible to my flesh or sex, for I am neither wood nor stone, but my mind is averse to wedlock because I daily expect the death of a heretic. And certainly uh, Luther had good reason to think this way. Luther and his wife moved into a former monastery, the Black Cloister, a wedding present from the new elector, John the Steadfast, who reigned from 1525 to 1532. They embarked on what appears to have been a happy and successful marriage, though money was often short. Katharina bore six children, two of whom did not live into adulthood. Katharina ran a farm and took in boarders to help support the family. Luther told a friend, my Katie is in all things so obliging and pleasing to me that I would not exchange my poverty for the riches of Croesus. Croesus is a figure from mythology who was incredibly wealthy. And uh, in case you're not aware of who that is, not a real person. By 1526, Luther found himself increasingly occupied in organizing a new church. His biblical idea of congregations choosing their own ministers had proved unworkable. According to Luther biographer Roland Bainton, Luther's dilemma was that he wanted both a confessional church based on personal faith and experience and a territorial church, including all in a given locality. If he were forced to choose, he would take his stand with the masses, and this was the direction in which he moved. So the idea of Christendom was not totally gone from Luther's thinking. So instead of having a church that is made up of only those people who actively profess to be Christians, he wanted the church to continue to represent a geographic locality. Again, the idea that most people within that region would be Christians and belong to the church. Now, if you have two churches who both claim to be the only church that represents the faithful in a given geographic region, I think you can see how easily this would lead to religious wars. Is it gonna be the Lutheran church or the Catholic church in a given region? And much of the history of Germany from this point onward, and, and Europe as well, consists of this, this struggle, which church is going to prevail in which region? Usually, the religion of the 
secular ruler of a particular geographic region or province would be the church that everybody would have to be a part of. This is, you know, we saw this in England somewhat. Uh, I didn't really get into it a whole lot, but uh, after Henry VIII, there was a tremendous struggle in England. So you have one king who's a Protestant, then the next king or queen that comes in is Catholic. So while the Protestant king is in power, the Catholics are persecuted. When there's a change of ruler and a Catholic ruler comes in t into power, then the Protestants are persecuted and the Catholics are you know, championed. Um, so it was this sort of thing that led to a lot of the religious wars throughout Europe and England. So in other words, Luther essentially continued the idea of Christendom, even though he was laying the foundation for a new church. From 1525 to 1529, he began to develop the structure of that church. He established a supervisory church body, laid down a new form of church of worship service, and wrote a clear summary of the new faith in the form of two catechisms. Now, interestingly, Luther wanted to avoid confusing or upsetting the people, so he wanted to avoid extreme change. He also did not wish to replace one controlling system with another. He concentrated on the church in the electorate of Saxony, uh, again, a province within Germany, acting only as an advisor to churches in new territories, many of which followed his Saxon model. In response to demands for a German liturgy, Luther wrote a German mass, which he published in early 1526. He did not intend it as a replacement for his 1523 adaptation of the Latin mass, but as an alternative for the simple people, a public stimulation for people to believe and become Christians. Luther based his order on the Catholic service, but omitted everything that smacks of sacrifice, and the Mass became a celebration where everyone received the wine as well as the bread. Details such as the Mass vestments, altar, and candles were made optional, allowing freedom of ceremony. Luther also continued to develop the German translation of the Bible. He used the German dialect spoke, spoken at the Saxon Chancellery, intelligible to both Northern and Southern Germans. He intended his vigorous, direct language to make the Bible accessible to everyday Germans. For we are removing impediments and difficulties so that other people may read it without hindrance. Published at a time of rising demand for German language publications, Luther's version quickly became a popular and influential Bible translation. And Luther's translation, Luther's German Bible, was read and, and used by scholars in England who, uh, again, thinking back to Tyndale and some of the other Bible translators in England, many of them were not only aware of German, uh, the German Bible that Luther had translated, but they were able to read it and... Um, glean a lot of good material from it as they worked on um, the English Bible. Luther was a prolific hymnodist. He wrote hymns, many hymns, authoring hymns such as 
A mighty fortress is our God. There you have the German, <laughs> which I'm not, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. Uh, this was based on Psalm 46. And uh, from heaven above to earth I come, based on Luke 2, 11 through 12. Those are just a few of his better known uh, hymns, but he wrote many, many hymns. Luther's hymns were included in early Lutheran hymnals and spread the ideas of the Reformation. Luther's hymns inspired composers of what we think of today as symphonic classical music, such as Johann Sebastian Bach. In later life, Luther continued to preach, write, and engage, of course, in various controversies. Now, Luther suffered from numerous ailments in his later life. His last sermon was delivered at Eisleben, his place of birth, on February 15, 1546, three days before his death. So uh, despite numerous physical problems, he continued working. Um, but in early 1546, he had a stroke and was unable to speak after that. And he died shortly afterwards at 2.45 a.m. on February 18, 1546, age 62 in Eisleben, the city of his birth. He was buried in the Schlosskirk in Wittenberg in front of the pulpit. And his grave is there to this day. So again, if you go to Germany and you go to the church in Wittenberg, you can see Luther's grave. Nearly 30 years before, he had nailed the 95 Theses to the door of this same church. So in that 30-year time, Martin Luther not only made his mark in the world, but he changed a lot of things for a lot of people. And his, of course, his pioneering work in uh, doctrine, justification by faith alone, all these things that we are the blessed inheritors of, this man, by the grace of God, was able to accomplish in his relatively short life in spite of persecution and always the ever-present threat of death. At any time, a ruler, some secular ruler, could have apprehended him and put him to death. And yet God kept him alive for 62 years to do this pioneering work that uh, we have been blessed to receive. So that concludes my presentation, part two of Martin Luther. Any questions or comments? Okay, thank you very much.